So imagine New York City, April of 2020, where the streets were empty. There was uh, uh, just when the global pandemic was, was starting to become nationally unknown, um, created a sense of chaos, uncertainty, um, and just pure speculation. So that, that's how I would define the capital markets in the multifamily industry today. Um, and it's been historically slow. Let's get ready to scale. Hey guys, welcome to yet another episode of Ready to Scale. I am your co-host, Jeanette Friedrich, Director of Investor Relations. Joining me today is what we'd like to call the trio. And we have our bold and fearless CEO, Ellie Perlman, and our absolute whiz analyst, Ryan Razaleski, coming to you today from actually three different locations. Ellie is in our LA office. I'm currently in our Boston office, headed to LA soon. And Ryan is suffering uh, somewhere in Florida right now. So thank you guys <laughs> for joining and it's good to see you guys. Hi, thank you. It's really great being here. And by the way, just to set the record right, um, Ryan is our acquisitions associate. So he's doing a lot of analysis, but he's 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 well, not an analyst. <laughs> yeah, Jeanette, I'll, I'll actually take the compliment because typically uh, you, you kind of intro me as the relentless nerd. So I think I've kind of accelerated now. Now I'm just a whiz analyst. So you know what? I'll, I'll take where I can get. You're moving up, Ryan. You're moving up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm actually really excited to talk to you guys today. And I think the listeners are going to enjoy this as well. So, you know, first of all, breaking news, which, you know, uh, today is actually the 24th of January. So some people may have already heard, others may not have. But I thought it was really interesting to see that institutionals are roaring back to life. So, you know, there was a huge announcement about Blackstone acquiring a $3.5 billion portfolio from Tricon. 38,000 single family homes uh, is the part that a lot of people have been talking about. But what I also definitely noticed is that they also have a very nice multifamily portfolio in Canada, in Toronto, actually. So I thought it was just, hey, look at everybody's waking up and institutionals are roaring back to life to kick off 2024. So Ryan, I have a little quiz for you, a little challenge. The answer is seven. The answer is seven, whatever you're going to ask. Of all of the nation's institutionally owned single family homes, can you guess which are the six main markets? The six main markets nationally? Yeah, nationally. Or geographically, so, so globally? No, nationally, in the nationally. United States. So single family national, I'm just thinking population. So here, here we go. I'm starting to spin here. Um, I'm going to say suburban Atlanta. I'm yep. going to have to say the Midwest in the suburbs of Chicago. I am going to say, oh, I'm off already. Don't you can't you can't <laughs> throw me off like that. So I, I got one. I got the Atlanta. Um, I'm gonna have to say the the Carolinas, specifically North Carolina, more western. Um, I'm going to have to say for single family, it's not gonna be Florida. Jeanette, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it was really interesting because, you know, basically from what I read about, 
the uh, institutional single family portfolio is unbelievably concentrated over a third in just these six major markets. So it's Atlanta, Charlotte, Dallas, Houston, Phoenix, and Tampa. And so, you know, right. Well, besides, besides Houston, we're pretty much, you know, active in all these markets. Um, And actually you just gave me an idea for the next trio episode. Um, We, you're also looking into uh, BTR built to rent and essentially buying uh, a community of single family homes and managing it as a multifamily asset. And uh, maybe we'll bring um, our, you know, a director of acquisitions to talk about it. Um, uh, you know, Tim, and he is um, essentially leading that, um, you know, that uh, these efforts at the lake. So that's, um, that could be interesting, because that will give investors the opportunity to jump on, you know, it's, I don't want to say a trend, because trend is more in the fashion industry, but um, on on kind of a subsect of the industry that is getting more and more popular, which means that if you buy it today, you're going to have more groups and more institutions that are going to be interested in, in, you know, um, buying what you're essentially going to purchase um, today, but let's let's not focus on that because we have a lot to cover. Um, but definitely, BTR could be the discussion for um, for our next episode. Yeah, Nelly, we're we're going to touch on that for a short while today because exactly what you said it's it's the the future looking trends and and projections, right? So it's it's realizing we're we're now in a renter nation, and as affordability becomes right. more difficult, um, residents are now seeking that that home ownership style of renting, and they're willing to pay a premium for for the additional space, the extra yard. Um, so it's 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 definitely a topic. I, I obviously that you could spend hours on it, so we we won't oh, focus yeah. on that today, but. Um, that's that's a great point. It's, it's a great space at this point, and it's relatively um, uh, non non matured, if you will. Yeah, yeah, great way. It, it's a great time to enter that. It's like um, buying multifamily, you know, fifteen years ago. But uh, let's let's get going. We have a, a, a very interesting and fun show. Um, so, Jeanette, I'm I'm gonna return the mic to you to continue leading us through uh, today's journey. Uh, you know, I promise, you know, to the listeners, we didn't like, you know, nobody got to read my notes before this, but I love it because you guys said exactly what I took from it too, which <laughs> a nation of renters. And when Goliath corporations and institutions come in and scoop up this much rental property and you start to see, you know, these extreme concentrations in, in main markets like this, you know, the reality is, it's very simple. It's like, do you want to actually be part of that? Or don't you? Because if these are the strategies that they're enacting, deeply investing in, they're taking this nation of renter trend and they're just simply adding to it. Uh, this is going to really be our new regular lives. I mean, you know, I honestly can say I'm a renter. I enjoy being a renter. I don't want to be responsible for, you know, some of the things that go along with uh, owning a home. And so, you know, I just think it's really interesting because to me, I know that investor sentiment had been shaken quite a bit in 2023, but I love seeing that as we are entering into 2024, you know, institutionals are just roaring right back into the game. And I think it's very important for investors to take note of that because it means that the bell has rung and it's time to get back in the ring. So I'm excited about it. I think it's a great way to kick off 2024. But on that note, uh, that's what we'd like to talk about today is what are we expecting for 2024? And really, this is where now I have to kick it back to Ryan, because Ryan, what's the market looking like? Tell us what's going on. How's deal flow? You know, what's happening? 
Yeah, I think that's a great a great conversation. Obviously, to kick off the new year, we have NMHC coming up in in about a week, so that that's where really the the industry wide um, kind of conversations happen and in kind of jumpstart to the new year. But to your point, before we even look forward into twenty twenty four, we kind of have to look at where are we today, um, and and I, I don't have as my, my analogies aren't nearly as as great as yours, Jeanette. But um, if, if I had to define the the environment that we're in today in one word, I would say eerie. And, and what I mean by that is, is just, just hang with me. So imagine New York City, April of 2020, where the streets were empty. There was, uh, just when the global pandemic was, was starting to become nationally unknown, um, created a sense of chaos, uncertainty, um, and just pure speculation. So that that's how I would define the capital markets in the multifamily industry today. Um, and it's been historically slow ever since we're coming out of the, the holidays. Um, typically, you see an increase in just total transactions coming to market. So not not closings, but um, deal flow is, is essentially what I'm alluding to is typically that starts to pick up um, towards the back half of this year. A lot of brokers come out with with deals um, ahead of NMHC so they can ha- uh, speak with with um, buyers face to face and understand. And, and right, what can are you the just tell the, the listeners who are not familiar, what is the NMHC? Yeah, Na- National Multifamily Housing Council has a um, industry event conference, typically two days. That this year it's going to be out in San Diego, so one of the most arguably um, ni- nicest areas for for weather and and just overall um, work life play, right? So I, I think it'll be a, a great time. But NMHC is ultimately um, the the pillar of the nation. So everybody that's in any type of commercial. Mer- commercial real estate vertical are at these conferences from buyers, um, from owner operators, managers, vendors, um, economists. It, it, it is truly the one-stop shop um, for, I mean, there's there's plenty of networking events, but um, th- this is kind of the holy grail, if you will, um, of, of multifamilies um, industry conference. And uh, so, so with that, I'll, I'll kind of talk again about where the, the the state of the market, where it is today, and, and I'll focus on more of the the interest rate and lending side, um, and then the deal flow in, in itself. So, um, starting off the year in January, the ten-year U.S. Treasury is, has fallen below four percent. So that that's given a lot of optimism to investors. And, and Jeanette, that's exactly what you're saying: is is 2024 is going to be the year where institutionals come back. I mean, there, you can only sit on that level of cash for so long. And what, what a lot of it what comes down to is, is nobody wanted to catch a falling knife. There was just not enough price discovery in the markets. There were not enough trades to say, you know what, I feel great at this basis. Yes, it's below replacement cost, but what does that mean relative to what's trading down the street, right? So if you can buy, let's say you have the similar vintage assets, similar units, same market, same rent structure, same NOI margin, um, and, and one deal is trading for let's call it 220 a unit and the others at 200. Nobody wants to be the one buying that unit at 220 thinking that we're going to keep going lower. So what what I've found is um, a lot of groups that are just kind of sitting and waiting because they don't want to have to have a difficult conversation with IC in three, four months from now saying, why did we buy today? So that that was the story of 2023. And that's slowly starting to change um, coming into 2024 because now now is the time we're we're seeing some level of of comfortness in the market. We're still seeing a wide bid ask spread um, because buyers are are holding their ground and and 
they need positive leverage. That that's been the the topic of conversation. Um, is I want to buy positive leverage today, and, and sellers are saying, okay, well, I, I still want to see if if interest rates are going to come down. So cash and refis are are still a looming concern since leverage is in the high fifties, low sixties. Um, and many NOI projections are underperforming over the last two years. So um, many investors are still expecting rate cuts in the back half of 2024 as inflation cools and, and new job openings decline. Um, and, and the agency lenders are, are pretty much the largest players in town still. That, that hasn't changed over the last six months. Spreads are still the same relatively. Um, Freddie's pulling back on IO and offering 35-year amortizations just to compete with Fannie. But um Fannie's being more aggressive on, on non-programmatic uh, I.O. and mission-driven deals. So, so those deals that have affordability components in, in specific markets. Um, so that, that's kind of where, where we're standing today on an interest rate environment. We do believe um, over the next 12 months, interest rates will start to normalize to the low fives, even potentially high fours. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, the, the economic data coming out in Q1, Q2 is, is really going to drive um, Fed's decision making in the back half of the year. So again, there's been plenty of speculation on that over the last two years. So um, I'll, I'll stay away from that right now, because if anybody pins me to something in 12 months from now, I could say it wasn't me, didn't say it. <laughs> um, and then on the transaction side on, on deal flow. So as I mentioned, January has been historically slow. We are seeing some things come out, but there, there's no very, there's no middle ground on the very of what we're seeing. You're either seeing small vintage, older, or, or, or excuse me, older vintage, smaller unit deals in, in tertiary markets, or you're now starting to see um, some institutions ready to recapitalize. So they're coming to the market with some very large 400 plus unit mid 2000 vintage core deals, um, or you see some, what I would say, operationally distressed opportunities, which it, like I said, there's no real middle ground of, of kind of Blue Lake, for example, our, our buy box is really looking at the location, the demographics, the asset quality, um, and the value add upside. Th those haven't necessarily surfaced yet, but we do anticipate that to pick up towards the, the back half of Q1 and going into Q2. Um, and really, what one thing, Jeanette, I'll, I'll kind of turn to you in a moment. Um, what we're finding in, in speaking with brokers and even sellers directly is everybody wants surety of closing equity identified and the ability to execute. So if you're up on a bid sheet and, and you have your track record, you have your performance, you're not going to come out and retrade. You could potentially win deals about a million dollars below the, the top bidder uh, just because that equity is identified. So that's why I know there's a, a, a very significant focus on um, the, the Blue Lake Fund at this point. And, and that's truly going to differentiate and give your investors a, an upper leg and a competitive advantage because they will be able to buy these deals that, that are really competitive in the market that are high quality and, and significantly below replacement costs and the peak of where they would have traded in 2022. So um, having that fund ready and launched and equity identified, that, that discretion um, is going to be critical for 2024 in, in terms of buying great deals. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, Ryan, what you said was really important. And, and I want to build on that because um, this realization in the market that um, surety of closing is more important than price because what we've seen in the past you know, years um, is that many sellers would have preferred to go with the highest bid. And sometimes, you know, we're talking about half a million, a million, you know, 4 million even um, delta 
from a group that is that maybe the broker hasn't heard of before and kind of came out of nowhere, made a ridiculous offer, and nobody knows if they can really close, but the price was so high that the seller decided to take the risk and work with them. Sometimes those deals, you know, worked. It worked when there was, you know, it was more likely to work when there was a lot more equity um, in the market. Um, and many times they did not work. They fell out of contract or they got retraded, which is also a trick that I've seen a lot of buyers do. Maybe, maybe not a lot of buyers, but some buyers do. They give you, they lure the sellers with a very high, with very nice price. And then during due diligence, when when both uh, parties are, um, you know, very in, engaged and involved and already paid the attorneys and are committed um, to the process, then they find all kinds of things that um, there's an issue with the roof or, you know, there's a few projects that they've discovered they needed to do that they didn't know that they needed to do beforehand. And they price them and they come back to the um, to the seller and say, hey, we need, you know, a million dollar discount because we've discovered a few, you know, a few more things. So eventually they'll win the deal at the price that they really wanted to pay. Um, and that realization that right now sellers do, and brokers do not want to take the chance. They they prefer to have a potential half a million, quarter million, two million dollars more in sale proceeds for the surety of closing. Once we understood that, we pivoted um, and we actually adjusted our strategy when it comes to the type of assets that we're looking for. And if anything in my my days at MIT, you know, taught me is um, that when you lead a company, if you do not know how to read the signs and read the change in reality, read the signs when it comes to the change in reality and adjust and adapt, you know, and adapt, then your company can suffer. And so part of what we've done is say, okay, we understand that right now, surety of closing is king. Surety of closing is the leading factor. Then because historically we've bought assets between, I think in the past five years or four years or so, the smallest asset was 38 million. The highest one was, you know, um, over 130 million. And we leaned towards the, the bigger assets. 80, 100, 120, 130 million. Right now, what we're doing, the way we've adjusted uh, to the market conditions and to what is really important in the market, we said, okay, let's go and look at the smaller assets. And when it says smaller assets, I'm not talking about, you know, duplex or, or 20 units. I'm talking still about two, 300 units, but around 50, $60 million where we can easily close that because we have closed deals twice as big. When we come to the broker and to the seller saying, here's our track record, we are, and, and we're known in the market as closers, we're, we've worked really hard to build that reputation. When someone knows that when they're selling a 50 or $60 million deal, that um, the group that is buying from them has closed on much larger deals for years, then that gives them that surety of closing. And when we do that, we are in a better position to win deals that is not necessarily um, predicated on submitting the highest bid. And that's how we capture value in the market. Yeah. 
Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sun Belt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital. Be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. Yeah, Ellie, a, a third of our you, you hit on so many important topics, and I appreciate you for unfolding or, or appreciate you for unfolding that a little bit more because about a third of our our current pipeline that's that's what I would say sitting in idle is deals that we bid on, and we have necessary we've become we're, we're with the top five bidders. However, there was such a price differential, and we it was about three weeks ago, I, I got an email from um, a potential GP that just said, we were awarded a deal. Um, we would look, we're, we're looking for equity. We need to, um, we have about two weeks until we need to sign the PSA. And sure enough, it comes across our desk. I said, wow, this is a deal we bid on. How did, how did they win this deal? And how are they looking for equity from group that doesn't even realize we bid on this as well? And I'm, I'm going to quote Mark Gleason here, which for, for everybody that, that's not familiar on the call is, is the director of the acquisitions on the East side or the East coast rather, is he says, you know, all, all, anybody who's awarded a deal is the biggest loser. And, and when you think about that, it's, it's in historically in 2021, 2022, it's because you, you were the top bidder, which not, isn't necessarily the case today. It's more so surety of execution, but exactly what you just said, Ellie is, is having, the surety of execution and the reputation and track record to execute um, is critical in today's environment. And I, I can't stress enough how much we're seeing that in, in today's environment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Janine, go ahead. I was just going to chime in and say, um, you know, absolutely, you're 100% correct. And Ellie, I especially loved what you talked about as far as pivoting and being able to read the signs and adapt accordingly and how critical that is. And, you know, it's really interesting because I was speaking with an investor earlier this week and basically, you know, the investor just shared with me, you know, listen, listen, Jeanette, I like you. I like Ellie. I like what you guys are doing. You know, I believe in you guys. I'm investing in you guys. I don't really care, you know, about too many of the details of the deal here. If this is what you think is good, you know, I trust your judgment. And it was really eye-opening to me because I, it made me realize that investors that are looking at deals, it, it's not just the numbers that they're necessarily looking at. It's the confidence in their operator to understand the scene better than them and lead them in it. And that is really, you know, what people are doing is they're investing in the operators because they believe in the operators and they want to see the operators succeed and they have confidence that these operators can and will succeed. And because, you know, we already have, um, you know, but I, I just think it's really, you know, great that you guys are explaining this kind of aspect behind the scenes because, you know, a lot of investors are not privy to how it goes down when you're trying to negotiate on a deal and win a deal and what factors come into play. And so I'm glad that, you know, we're highlighting that because, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to the investor, you know, viewpoint, uh, they are trusting us to understand these things and to move accordingly. And that's exactly what we're doing. So I'm glad that, you know, we're really kind of peeling the onion back a little further, because I think it's really important that people understand. 
Yeah, yeah. I apologize. I, I I went off on a tangent here talking about the current conditions of the market because it's been a little <laughs> while since we talked on that. Jeanette, your initial question to me was, what are we expecting for 2024? So um, I'll, I'll just kind of give you what what we're seeing, <laughs> what, what we're seeing from both the transactions and an operational side of, of what we're assuming based on um, kind of being ears to the ground is on the transaction side, as I alluded to earlier, is we, we're expecting deal volume to pick up starting in Q2. Um, not to the pre-pandemic levels, but or excuse me, not to the 2022 levels, um, but certainly to, to pre-pandemic. And we're we're expecting to see more deal flow in the southeast, just because that's that's where sheer volume of, of opportunity that was um, acquired in 2022. So a lot of value add deals that didn't fully execute. Um, those are going to start coming to market, and then also in Florida. Um, insurance renewals are typically in Q1, March, April. So I, I think that we're still facing concerns in, in the, the, risk, the risk segment of, of this business. So um, once those renewals come to fruition, I think um, we're, we're going to see a lot of opportunity there as well. Um, I, I definitely believe there's going to be a high volume of lease ups as developers seek to exit quickly. We have about 600,000 units expected to be delivered um, in the calendar year of 2024. And, and another analogy here is if, if you ever went to one of those pop-up amusement parks, you know, the little horse ride where you roll the ball into the sectors and then you're into the holes and, and you either move one space, two space, three spaces. I, I feel like that's kind of a depiction of what developers are doing right now. And the reason I say that is because of so many units are coming online at once, it's going to be a race to stabilization. It's going to be a race to how do we get there quicker? Is it steeper concessions? Is it rent cuts? Is it a combination of both? Um, because what I've seen most recently is I, I had a recent conversation with a broker um, from a developer selling a deal that was 73% occupied. They're, they're almost, they're, they're more than three quarters of the way there, yet they're coming to market and they're, they're expecting a group to bid on that takeout bridge debt. Um, which is going to be at a, a higher risk profile. And I expressed that to the broker and said, I, I just, I, I would love to, for you to stabilize this asset and I'll pay you more for it. Um, and they come back and said, no, the sellers need to get out. They, they need, they need that equity for some of their other projects that are, that are in ground right now. Um, so that I, I definitely think there's going to be the, the merchant builders that are going to come out with um, new construction lease ups. I think there's going to be a tremendous opportunity and a lot of transactions just because of the volume of properties coming online, but also because it's going to be a race to stabilization. So everybody's going to try to launch first um, before the next deal right around the corner goes. So that that's going to be another. And as you mentioned, Jeanette, institutions will come back into the market, whether it's it's the the early part of this year or the back half. Um, that patient capital waited all last year, and and now it's time. Um, and then from from an asset class perspective, conventional multifamily, which we're we're going to talk about, or Ellie's going to elaborate on in a little bit more detail on the fundamentals. Um, conventional multifamily is going to be a hot topic, but we're also hearing discussions about student housing, senior living, affordable housing. Just because of where we are in the economy today, it's it's what what they define as a more risk adverse uh, investment vehicle because education doesn't get impacted the same way travel, leisure, and hospitality does, right? So th those types of um, asset classes um, are, are seeing a little bit more attention as well. And then from an operational side, we, we do expend, expect rents to soften, not the fundamentals, which is what Ellie's going to elaborate on, but rents are softening. It's, it's no question, pretty much across 90% of the markets that we're looking at today, but that, that just presents opportunity because you're purchasing rents 
that were historically at a specific level. So if you peg rents correctly and conservatively, you're, you're just going to ride the wave come 2025, 2026 when, when there aren't as many deliveries and we're still supply constrained and, and you're going to see that, um, that, that level of absorption increase. So vacancy is going to normalize this upcoming year to about 94%, which is historical um, levels. Your, your strong secondary markets are, are going to hold a little bit higher than that. Um, but I, I also believe that consumers are going to be a little bit more price elastic this year, just for the fact that um, credit card debt, student loan repayments, savings are, are depleting. So the asset management side of, of how you, you price renewal rents is, is going to be an opportunity um, in, in this upcoming year. So these are some of the high level things from a transaction side and from an operational side that I, I in, in my chair, um, believe is going to come to fruition. Yeah, and you mentioned um, Ryan, the fundamentals, they're very strong. So if you're you're looking, for instance, um, you know, on office, for for instance, the demand has dramatically changed because because a lot of groups started working from home or in a lot of companies that could not get more funding, you know, went under. And so there's not there's not enough demand for offices in some markets where we are in Century City, Los Angeles. It's, you know, the buildings are pretty much, uh, you know, very highly occupied. So it's, it really depends on, you know, there's some pockets that are very popular. Um, but unlike, you know, retail that has been impacted and um, office that has been impacted. And I, I do believe that it will come back, but it's going to take, you know, more time. The demand for multifamily has not changed. So if you have been listening to us since the beginning, Jeanette started by saying how much she loved, you know, being a renter. And a lot of people today, they do not want to buy a house and be bound to a certain area. They like the flexibility of moving around. Um, and so uh, the demand for multifamily, the need to have multifamily, you know, units and, and rent them, it's still very high. The thing that will change, and that's, uh, you know, also something that Ryan touched on, is the rent. Rent growth is not going to be, you know, as high as we, you know, are used to see it. We used to have assets that are were B-minus assets in, in Atlanta, for instance, and we were able to raise rents 59.6%, 59, 60%, 60 Obviously, nobody underwritten for that number. But right now, if we thought that assets are going to rise, you know, the rents are going to rise 7, 10%, which sometimes we still see it. Today, we under ideals for very minimal rent increases because that's the trend that we are seeing. That's the change in multifamily, not the demand for it. There's still going to be demand. There's still going to be people knocking, you know, on, on your doors wanting to rent a place it's more about how do you underwrite the rent growth? Are you reasonable with the rent growth assumptions, with the premiums that the renovated units, you know, are going to charge? These are the things, and of course the debt, um, but that is much easier to predict if you're taking a fixed rate, you know, loan and you know exactly how much you're going to pay every month for the next, you know, four or five years, that part of the equation can be easily solved. The rents are, you know, essentially what you need to uh, look into. Um, and occupancy, generally speaking, in the market is is pretty high, above ninety percent. 
but the the rent growth is the biggest um you know unknown in in the equation and we're prepared for that and we're underwriting actually for very very moderate you know rent increases so this is something yeah, Ellie, I, that, I that's a main change in the industry yeah and I, I can touch on that real quick too and, yeah. and exactly what you just said is is the, the rent growth assumptions are are more impactful when you're looking at core product where you don't have value add. Whereas to your point, what we're identifying and kind of how we're focusing on the class B value add spaces, we're just simply looking at inferior product that hasn't met the market yet. So a lot of the underwriting we're doing today is saying have rent, have value add rents been approved? Is there product in the area that has been renovated and, and achieving, let's say, a $250 premium above where we are? So what we're doing on a conservative case is saying, OK, well, we've identified a clear value add program. This isn't about organic rent growth. This is about forced appreciation and, and forced value through just catching up on rents by by renovating interiors. So what we've been targeting is when, knowing that rents are softening. OK, well, let, let's let's do let, let's model or let's shock a value add um, pro forma to determine can we keep rents 10 to 15 percent below where rents are being achieved at a, a specific um, nearby nearby comp. That's kind of how we're approaching this this uncertainty of where do you peg rents? Well, it's simple. Let's start 10 to 15 percent below where they are today, knowing that, I mean, for, for rents to come down another 10 percent, we're going to have to go through another global pandemic, in my opinion. Um, so that's why we're using that kind of as a rule of thumb to say if we can conservatively model a, a value add program with rents 10 to 15 percent below what's already been achieved today, we have that room to come down, yet we're still going to be able to execute. So just wanted to kind of touch on that a little bit, too, because the, the distinguished the, or to, the, the distinguish, the, to distinguish the difference between organic rent growth for core product and the risk profile there relative to being conservative in a value add program. Yeah, and that's why investing in new assets and in funds that are recently have been recently launched um, kind of lowers you know the risk. Every investment has risk, obviously. Um, we've launched a public multifamily fund. We already have the first asset in the fund. It's overperforming. Um, it has fixed debt on it. And and um, essentially because when we bought it, we were buying it in today's world. So we were we knew to put essentially to have fixed debt on the asset. We knew to look at um, relatively moderate rent increases. So that together, the debt and the rent growth um, combined really lower the risk um, by, you know, a pretty large, you know, uh, margin. So um, if you want to uh, talk with us about investing in the fund, um, reach out to Jeanette and I'm going to, Jeanette, how, what's the best way for investors to reach out to you if they want to uh, talk about the fund? Oh, you know, my email is very simple. It's Jeanette. It is the, long, the world's longest spelled name. So it's J-E-A-N-N- E T T E. So two N's and two T's at blue lake dash capital.com. And, um, you know, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Or, you know, I literally will give people my phone number. It's 210-740-5431. I love talking to investors. You have it folks. Let me write that down. I'm going to prank phone call that later. <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, kind of to add to both of you, yeah. I was going to clarify one thing, a very important factor. Um, so, yeah, I am a renter and, you know, I've been renting for, you know, my entire adulthood life. Um, but I didn't say that I'm not an investor. So to me, why do I want to waste money on one door that generates no income for me, which would be, you know, where I live, um, when I can 
instead invest in multifamily, which is a ton of doors and has, you know, a lot of potential for producing additional, you know, income for me, right? Like it's a no brainer to me. So, you know, I'm just clarifying that because I know that I'm not the only person that, you know, that actually truly prefers to be a renter, but just because you're being a renter doesn't mean that you're wasting per se your money. You can actually offset that by being smart with your investments and growing your wealth in that way instead. Um, so just wanted to kind of point that out there. Um, the other thing is, is I'm really glad that you're both talking about it. And I just want to, you know, I just want to clarify it even further. When we're talking about rents or softening, that doesn't mean that we're not still getting rent increases. Um, yeah. You know, and, and so people- They're just not 60% or 30%. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah. and that's actually good because it would be crazy if we were getting 60, 70. I mean, there was no way that would be sustainable for the long term. Yeah. Think about yeah, what the, rest of the economy would be like if we were really continuing to achieve that. So, you know, even if we say, oh, rents are softening, the reality is that if you look at the numbers, the type of returns that you're still going to get off of that are still a lot stronger and a lot more likely to actually happen than, say, the stock market, which I started playing in the stock market recently. It was great. I made like 200 bucks in one day, lost <laughs> it all the very next day. So, you know, if you don't enjoy volatility and you're looking for reasonable, stable, measured growth, this is one of the extreme benefits of multifamily, as well as the fundamentals, you know, that Ellie was talking about, which in, in plain black and white English is people will always need a place to live and we will always pay money always. for that, you know? Always. Yeah. Whether it's multifamily or, or built to rent, mm -hmm. always. All right. Well, I think that concludes our discussion today. And perhaps for next time, um, we can uh, host uh, Tim uh, instead of me. He's, you know, I'm, uh, I, I, I think I'm a fairly smart person, but I think what I do best is finding smarter people than me uh to run different you know verticals at blue lake so um we perhaps we should you know talk about bringing tim uh as a guest uh to talk about btr and what he sees in the market um so you can uh, you can have a break for me you know next week or next time we're, we're airing this um but thank you so much guys it's been you know a, a pleasure as always um I, I really enjoy you know this you know these discussions um and Jeanette, she's you're actually moving to the LA office. So um, perhaps uh, in about a month or so, we're going to have, maybe we can sit in the same room uh, and record. So that's, uh, that's going to be, that's going to be interesting. That's right. You see this pale, pale skin that I got here in New England. Hopefully I'll finally have a tan in a few months from now. Well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, Ryan, uh, you're suffering a lot um, over there in Florida. <laughs> so uh, I want to thank you um, for uh, for keep, keeping your your heads up. Um, keeping your chin up or your heads up. How does the how does the phrase go? Keeping your chin they, up. They, they, they work kind of simultaneously. I don't think I can detach it. So <laughs> that's true. All right, guys. Thank you so much again. And uh, for the listeners, I hope that we added, you know, value to you and you enjoyed this conversation at least as much as we did. If you want to talk to us again, um, you can reach out to Jeanette at BlueLake-Capital.com or info at BlueLake-Capital.com. That's it for today, guys. Be bold, be brave. Uh, keep moving forward and do not stop investing. <laughs> See you on the, on the next episode or the one after. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.